Hi everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a literary podcast that dares greatly to go where no fiction teacher has gone before. Thank you for joining me, everyone, and welcome to the Bazaar of Bad Dreams Part 2. We are going to continue right where we left off last episode, which is to plug in directly and swiftly into the latter 10 stories attached to this absolutely stellar short story collection released in 2015. So if you haven't yet listened to the first episode, please pop back over there and do so, and you can hear some of my thoughts on the first 10 stories in the collection, as well as some of the things I noticed uh, in regards to theme and some of the subjects King has explored. So yeah, pop back over there. Uh, Or if you're super punk rock and don't like to follow rules, that's fine too. And you can listen to part two first. I don't mind whichever path you choose. But I am thrilled to bring a second part of this stellar collection to you guys because I just finished reading it for the second time this past week. And my guys, I just, oh, I can't gush enough over how much I enjoyed it. And believe it or not, the, the latter 10 stories, I should say, are so incredibly rich and well done. I didn't think it was possible to outfox the first 10, but I think we may have some contenders. We have some definite outfoxing contenders here, guys. Just, oh, my heart, wow. So much to say, so many thoughts, so many things, but I'm such a fan of this collection and I really wish it was read by more constant readers, my guys. This is just absolutely underrated to the max. And in addition to constant readers, new readers, absolute strangers in the night to Stephen King. I, I, my hope, my little dandelion hope blowing on the breeze, floating along, is that with these two two episodes covering this collection, it might strike a match with a few curious people out there and encourage them to get a copy of this wonderful assortment of stories and see that this collection is significantly stronger than 2002's Everything's Eventual as well as 2008's Just After Sunset. Now, put your pitchforks down, put down that machete, don't come for me, don't mistake me as not enjoying those collections because I do. I love them. I totally love them, and I have the episodes to prove it. So head back to earlier in the podcast, and you can read my thoughts on those collections, those aforementioned titles. Uh, I'm so in love with them, guys. There are some rare and uh, quite perfect gemstone stories found in those collections. For example, the uh, absolutely incredible... uh, 1,000% terrifying and all-consuming, haunting, one of my all-time favorites, The Man in the Black Suit, uh, as well as the absolute (laughs) soul-shattering, in terms of fear, 1408. Uh, Both are found in Everything's Eventual. Oh my god, guys, 1408. Do not read alone. You have been warned. Um... 
In addition to those titles uh, inside Everything's Eventual, oh my god, let's jump over to Just After Sunset where we had we have a super badass thriller. It was so great. I thought about it a lot last year. A lot. Um, I actually really couldn't get out of my head and that is The Gingerbread Girl. So I highly recommend that story to all my ladies out there who are a little too obsessed with true crime and crave an adrenaline spike. Please check out the Gingerbread Girl. Um, any any males out there as well <laughs> who also enjoy true crime, but I don't know. There's something very, very female about the Gingerbread Girl, so uh, I recommend that to my ladies. I also recommend N, just the letter N. That's also inside Just After Sunset. Super creepy-rific and recommended either pre or post reading of Under the Dome. I think either or, you'll be fine and it's incredibly enjoyable. Ergo, there are numerous favorite stories in both collections. So again, put the rocks down. Don't sling them at me. I'm not, you know, uh, hating on those titles all I'm saying hear me out is when I look back guys when I look at the table of contents for the bazaar of bad dreams friends I am salivating over many many if not almost all of the stories in this collection so I know for a fact I didn't feel as strongly or as connected to the majority of stories in the aforementioned titles of Everything's Eventual and Just After Sunset. So that's all I'm saying. Um, as we talked about in the last episode, we have so much working in this collection, particularly a very strong adherence to theme. It's rich, it's dark, it's connected. It's alive and in your face with every story. And we, in this latter half of the collection, guys, have some power players that I can't wait to discuss with you in depth. And yeah, I, I feel we actually may have even more content than last week to dive into. And really quick, segue, side note, can we talk about this cover art? Ladies and gentlemen and owners of the American hardcover, can we just swoon a little bit over here at the very spooky yet mystical, dark, beguiling cover art that adorns this wonderful book? Oh my god. We have blue mist. We have a kind of hooded wraith death figure in the background. We have the silhouette of a male head and a creepy face, super macabre. We have butterflies and smoke. This is dark fairy gothic paradise, guys. Whoever, you know, if you long buried your just inner goth kid, let's bring out the black and celebrate this amazing cover art. This has to be in my top five favorite king covers for sure. So if you have the American hardcover in your collection, whip it out and admire it because I bet it's been a minute since you've done that. Take a look at this beauty. Uh, and if you have the paperback edition, I don't know if it carried over. So uh, hopefully that's cool too. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I, I should have done my research on both the hardback and the paperback. I was a bit elitist. I was uh, in, in that. I was only celebrating the hardcover. I hope the paperback edition is equally wonderful. But uh, back on track, in this episode, we're going to definitely highlight these power player stories. These stories, guys, after I read them, could not get them out of my mind, just couldn't shake them, and that's when I know we're dealing with some power, when it's just latching on and ringing around in there. So I kept thinking about them over and over again, and for me, that's a good sign I need to talk to you about them as well. Um, in addition to the stories I absolutely loved, we're going to discuss some reappearing themes and motifs that kept popping up in this collection. I feel it's a little deja vu, which I believe makes the collection even more rich and beguiling, because these repetitive concepts keep echoing throughout the collection like a ripple effect. Um, at least it was like that for me, so more on that in the next section. But overall, my goal for this second episode is to highlight how awesome most of these stories are and why this nearly 500 page collection not only deserves to be enjoyed to the fullest, but it's quite deserving of the 2015 Shirley Jackson Award for Best Collection, and it should also be a huge nominee for brand new Stephen King readers. It is the hill I will die on, folks. I will sing this from the rooftops. I will be a broken record. My guys, I feel this collection is strong and rich and interesting and has enough genre play, sincerity, and literary power to win over the crusty hearts of the most acrimonious literary snobs. I believe it can. It, if given the chance, it can do it. If we let it, we need. We just. We just need to give it spotlight. We need to give it wings. So to kick us off, let's do a quick synopsis, like we did in part one of the ten players we have for the second part of this collection. In the first episode, I gave a little snippet of all ten stories, and now we're gonna go through the final ten. Number eleven, Herman Woke is still alive. Oh my god, my friends, if I could marry this story, I think I would. <laughs> um, so, Herman Woke is Still Alive is ripped from the headline's interpretation of the sadness behind the madness. Two single moms, little children, a fast rental car, vodka and orange juice, two aging poets, both former lovers, picnicking at a rest stop when the world explodes. My friends, I would be the second wife to this amazing story. I just have to interject there. I, I, I would bear its children. I, okay, moving on. <laughs> but I'm obsessed. I can't wait to talk about that story with you. Number 12, Under the Weather. An ad agency executive leaves post-it notes for his sick wife, takes the dog out for walks, basks in the New York City high-rise life, and isn't at all concerned when the doorman alerts him they may need to vacate the floor due to an odd odor. Number 13, Blockade Billy. 
Sports journalist Steve King interviews aging third base coach George Granny Grantham of the former 1958 Titans, where Billy Faraday was a walk-on catcher who cracked home runs and blocked the plate for the greatest and most infamous rookie season to ever be witnessed. Number 14, Mr. Yummy. Lakeview Assisted Living Center, where residents have, quote, one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Aging friends Dave and Ollie talk about puzzle pieces and the defining moments of their sexualized youth that still burn bright and keep the pep in their step. Number 15, Tommy. The 1960s, a funeral for a young man dead of leukemia, a four-page prose piece on death in 1969, on toasting to loss and the true meaning of bummer. Number 16, the little green god of agony. Nurse Catherine is fed up with her well-paid gig in pain management, but can't afford to tell feeble multi-millionaire Andrew Newsom to shut up and snake oil salesmen ride out to get the hell out until a mysterious shift in the rain-soaked day does it for her. Number 17, that bus is another world. On a gridlocked afternoon in Manhattan, Stuck in a taxi, one man witnesses another's fate from a very revealing window pane. Number 14, Obits. Rhode Island University grad has a first-time journalist job at the Neon Circus, writing comedic celebrity obituaries until the joke's on him and his tre tremendous power. Number 19, Drunken fireworks. Maine and the 4th of July, a mother and son won't quit in their rivalry with the Massimo family. Number 20, Summer Thunder. The bombs have gone off and the end is all around for Robinson and his found canine Gandalf. Without much time left, Robinson takes back the final word on how he'll exit the world. And lastly, we have a super secret paperback edition surprise story that I had to mention and include in the count because it rocked my world and I could not, guys, could not leave it out. That is number 21, Cookie Jar. 13-year-old Dale interviews great-grandpa Rhett for school when Rhett reveals a boy... A reveals boyhood with a mother whose mind was steeped in another world and the giant ceramic blue cookie jar left behind. Oh my god. So this one moved me so much, guys. I am chomping at the bit to discuss it with you because it gave me such a sucker punch to the heart. And I actually misspoke in the last episode. I thought I, thought I misspoke on the titles cookie jar I thought was called Tommy, but Tommy was the prose poem. It was not the same story. So I kind of made an error in last episode. Cookie jar is the one I was talking about. But um, guys, I need you to read this one like now, like today. It's a must. It's 
please do it ASAP. Either grab your copy of the collection and skip right to Cookie Jar if you have the paperback version, or hunt down the PDF from the Virginia Quarterly Review where it was first published in the spring of 2016. Please do it, do it, do it right now because this one, guys, is spellcasting. It's super memorable, incredibly vivid, fantastic, and I'm getting carried away. I'm trying to hold back so I can explode when we get to this area in the episode, but tune in for the next section where we're going to talk about some of the disappearing and reappearing narrative concepts that I mentioned. I just love that they keep popping up and I'm totally okay with it. And then after that, we're going to dive straight into the stories that moved me that I can't stop thinking about. And I'm also going to share some favorite excerpts to hopefully get your minds engaged and get you wishing you could crack open your copy of this collection and or click on the order button from your favorite local bookmonger. So as always, I'm going to do my very best in this episode to avoid direct spoilers. So I try to navigate around endings as well as huge character arcs. That is a little tricky with shorter fiction, but I am going to do my darndest. And just in case I'm not up to snuff, please tread carefully and know that I don't intend to spoil things for you, but I might on accident. I might get too carried away and let my lips run away from me and there we go. So I don't want to piss anybody off. So if you're really passionate about coming into this collection spoiler free, please make sure you read it or listen to the stellar, absolutely wonderful audiobook version in which all 20 stories, 21 stories actually, have a different narrator, which I love it when they do that. It just makes it so rich and great. So please make sure that you have freshly read the collection if you want to avoid all spoilers. Uh, pop back over to episode one to catch my thoughts on the first 10 or my thoughts on some of the strongest five that I loved with all my heart and soul and then join us for the following sections where we're going to talk about these amazing ladder 11 stories actually. So thank you guys so much for sticking with me. I'll see you in the next section. Folks, let's hit the ground running with part two of some introductory analysis on 2015's The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. So before we dive into the stories, I wanted to mention two recurring motifs used in this collection aside from the numerous run-ins with the mention of fecal matter, which I went over in episode one. Um, so if you, during your reading of this collection, kind of noticed that 
well, there's uh, an ever-present amount of human poo mentioned. You're not the only one who noticed, but that's throughout King's work uh, in general, in its entirety, as many other podcasts have highlighted. But I had to discuss it a little bit because with this collection, it's really hard to ignore. But here we have two repetitive subjects that pop up in story after story, and I must say, guys, I'm really vibing with them. I enjoy their presence quite a bit. So the two we see over and over again are number one, the old and wealthy benefactor, and number two, the nursing home. So regarding number one, we have four stories where an older gentleman, specifically male, is featured and is endowed, he is endowed with lots of money. Um, And this money is what's used to get others to do his bidding. Uh, The first story that has one of the strongest old wealthy benefactors is the little green god of agony. That one has a real cranky one. And that one, as I mentioned in episode one, definitely channels the nightmare a little bit. Uh, That one really feels like some old school horror, very macabre, very much an HP Lovecraft investigation for sure. Um, The other story where we really see the old benefactor in a very interesting way is called Morality. Morality was in the first 10 stories of the collection, so I do talk about that one in the previous episode, but We have a really interesting old wealthy benefactor in that one because the super rich old money bag who is putting forth a significant amount of cash to have a crime committed, he was a former priest slash minister and what's so strange and intriguing is now that he's sort of past his golden years, he's decided after living a good life of kindness and generosity and goodwill towards his fellow man, that he's just gonna completely 180 and ruin other people's lives. And it's kind of in a subtle uh, Machiavellian way, but um, it's also really messed up. (laughs) Um, And I think he's in this Oh god, that story's so good, guys. Please read Morality. But I think that that villain, the old wealthy benefactor, is really intrigued with the fact of how a simple push, a tiny little nudge in the path of sin, is actually what causes the snowball to form into the avalanche. So, uh, and he uses cash to do that. Um, and so it's it's amazing. It's so strange. He, um, the old wealthy benefactor in morality, is definitely one of the most intriguing. Little green god of agony, he's definitely just cut and dry, has a lot of money, and kind of a cranky old man. But uh, the other story, story number three, is Cookie Jar, and that's uh, an awesome contender. Definitely the most subtle of the three stories. Uh, Great Grandpa Rhett is very wealthy after owning a series of car dealerships over a good chunk of his life, which he bequeathed them to his sons and grandsons and great-grandson. They're all going to inherit quite a bit of capital when he passes on. So even though 
when you read Cookie Jar, I think the exchange between grandson and grandpa is a bit on the... It's reminiscent of Princess Bride, the film. I think that one came out in 86. I hope I got that right. But um, The Princess Bride, it's pretty much the most quotable movie ever. Um, but uh, in The Princess Bride, we have uh, a little sick boy whose grandpa is reading him a bedtime story. And so I get that vibe a lot with Cookie Jar. However, I'm still counting it as an example of the wealthy benefactor. Old and on his way out, and he has a lot uh, to bequeath to his family. So if you guys have been tuning into the podcast lately, I commented on another wealthy benefactor story in my episode of If It Bleeds last year, 2020's brand new novella collection. So I hope you guys have had some time to take a look at that. There are some gems inside and my favorite, favorite story of the four was one called Mr. Harrigan's Phone about a young boy named Craig from Harlow, Maine, if I remember that correctly. And he is a sweet little guy who reads and helps a very old Mr. Harrigan. Um, you know, hear stories from the newspaper and he reads him old books and helps him out, but mostly he's his friend. And after Mr. Harrigan passes away, oh my god, he leaves Craig a fat stack of cash, guys, for school. I think that's the that's the largest amount of money I've heard exchanged in a King story thus far. Um, granted, I'm still making my way. I'm about, uh, as I've said in my interview with Mr. Pellegrini, I thought I was in the 40s. I am most definitely not. I'm only about 30 King books in, so I got a lot to go. So perhaps there are higher number exchanges down the road, but in Mr. Harrigan's phone, he gives little Craigers like 800 grand for undergrad and graduate school, and it's insane. And it's a really beautiful friendship between the two of them. And as I mentioned in that episode, it reminds me so much of Charles Dickens. So if you're somebody who has ever read a Charles Dickens novel, they're predominantly about money uh, because Mr. Dickens, his own father, was thrown into debtor's prison when he was a child, so that pretty much would traumatize anybody to see money as life and death. So uh, Dickens writes about, of course, money, class issues, not dying in the street, you know, going to debtor's prison, whatnot. Uh, so I like that King uses money from the old wealthy benefactor trope in a way that's super sinister, or at the same time, it can be used for good. Um, but cookie jar are, um, pardon me, not cookie jar. Uh, I think that Mr. Harrigan's phone um, is is an awesome example of the wealthy benefactor if that is something you are enjoying in King's work. I really, really like it. Uh, so we have, I, so Mr. Harrigan's phone was kind of an outlier. <laughs> I just wanted to mention it because I loved it so much. But the last story, the fourth story within uh, The Bizarre of Bad Dreams that totally still counts, it also is very subtle with the old wealthy benefactor, but that's a, a very punchy, very memorable little story called The Dune, which I also mentioned a little bit in the first episode last week. 
And we have uh, an old guy in his 80s, retired Judge Beecher, who lives off the Florida coast, has devoted his life to law, and he has a really nice meeting with legal counsel where they're drinking scotch, and I believe he is seeking legal counsel for his will. I might be mistaken on that, I might be fudging the plot facts just a bit, but he is chatting with another law professional in a kind of dispersing wisdom meeting, and I believe there is money or assets involved for sure. It's protection of the fantastically freaky dune, uh, the actual land itself, to be kept forever wild in his last wishes. So I'm going to count it. I'm going to count it as the old wealthy benefactor sort of using money to accomplish their goals, whether uh, for good or for evil. And with the Dune, oh my god, please read that one as well. Uh, basically, this little piece of land very close to Judge Beecher's home, uh, his beach house has, um, let's just say it's a pretty mystical special place. And so he's basically obsessed with it, super in love with the power of it, and uh, yeah, he's gonna use his money to keep it protected, preserved forever and ever. Uh, so we're gonna count it. Four stories, guys. Four stories at the minimum. I could be missing a few, actually. Um, when I looked at all 20, 21 stories within the Bazaar of Bad Dreams compilation, those are the strongest players for me in terms of representing the wealthy benefactor. So I don't exactly know why this is a thing, but what my hypothesis is, is that at the time of publication for the Bazaar of Bad Dreams, Granted, I know that a lot of these stories were written when I researched them. It looks like they were all written over a 10-year period, uh, relatively close together. But at the time of publication, Mr. King, born in 1947, was 68, 69 years old. So my guess is maybe we're seeing a lot more uh, nursing home stuff, elderly benefactor stuff, because it's either his own personal geriatrics or that of his friends influence the more prominent presence of the wealthy benefactor trope. But I love it, guys. I love it so much. As I mentioned, it reminds me of Dickens, and I think many constant readers kind of enjoy the consistent king tropes we see throughout his work. For example, the one where the main character or narrator is a writer, either successful or not yet discovered. We have those everywhere in King's work, both novel, novella, and short story collection. They're everywhere. So it's a winner, and I love repeating King tropes. So when you read The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, keep an eye out for the wealthy benefactor within. So I can only count four, but maybe you guys will find even more that I missed. They're sneaky, yet some of them are genuinely pure-hearted, but others start off good and are now rotten eggs. I don't know. It's pretty cool, but uh, I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for more wealthy benefactors as I make my way through King's underrated works. 
So our second reappearing trope, as I mentioned earlier, is of course the nursing home, retirement home, assisted living facility, and my, my, my friends, we have them everywhere in this collection. Everywhere. So we first see it in our second story. I mentioned this one a little bit last week. This is number two, uh, Batman and Robin Have an Altercation, which is such a strange title, but it totally works. And it's basically this, the story of an older son taking his father out of the nursing home for a restaurant dinner. And then at the end, he's taking him his father home to the nursing home. He's taking him back with much calamity ensuing uh, between that plot frame. Super random and uh, yeah, the narrative definitely takes a twist in which a simple traffic altercation really exacerbates. So I liked that one quite a bit. The next one we have is Mr. Yummy. This is a little teeny story I super loved and I'm gonna discuss it in greater detail in my next section because I think it's very unique and I think it's really important. But we have another assisted living facility that's heavily focused on the residents. And we don't really leave the facility uh, until the very end, and it's only like a short little pizza slice when we're not in the assisted living facility. But it is similar to the Batman Robin story. But what I love about Mr. Yummy, the uniqueness I mentioned, is that we have an elderly gay man reminiscing with a very straight friend of his, just, just two old guys. And the story is about sexuality, uh, but not in a crass way, more on the, the youth vitality, reminiscing the vi yeah, vitality, That's the, I was going to say like the vividness, the um, just the, the overall animatedness of being young and alive and turned on sexually and how it kind of gives you hope a little bit. At least that's how I read it. But there's so much to appreciate that story. More on it later. But yes, lots of elderly citizens there. And it does make me wonder if the father in Batman and Robin have an altercation was a resident of the same place because I want it to be. <laughs> I think we always do that in our own way uh, as fans of King. At least I do it all the time. I think we always connect King things perhaps more than we should. For example, everything Castle Rock is connected, I'm convinced. So I'm sure I'm not the only one. But lastly, Cookie Jar once more is featured because young Dale, our 13-year-old grandson, great-grandson, goes to yet another assisted living facility to visit with great-grandpa Rhett, who has a room there. And little Dale learns about way more than he bargained for about his grandpa and the past. So not only is great-grandpa Rhett the wealthy benefactor who does in fact bequeath something to little Dale, but he is also a resident of a nursing home. So lots of similar beads showing up on the string of the charm bracelet, which given the fact for the most part, it seems as though the majority, as I mentioned, these stories were written in about an eight to 10 year time frame, at least when I was researching their their publication dates or when they were published in other things. Um, it all seems in a 
approximately a 10-year bubble. Uh, so it's nice to connect the dots um, and and wonder sort of where Mr. King was at creatively uh, with the frequent mentioning of nursing home. So in addition, really quick, now that we've established wealthy benefactor and nursing home, we also have two stories featuring prisons. So if you were a fan of, you know, uh, Stephen King in the whole prison environment, of which we have a few amazing stories, novels in those settings, specifically Shawshank, um, we've got Bad Little Kid, which I mentioned in detail last episode. I really enjoyed that one. Very rich, very creepy and one of my favorites a death that one very small but we're actually in sort of an old-time country jail somewhere in rural Nebraska and sometime before the 1900s but yeah so we got we got some prison motif popping up as well so one more little uh, chunk I wanted to talk about before we head into dissecting some of the favorite stories is novel connections. And I do want to mention this because I know, and it's sad, I, I accept this reality even though it still makes me sad, but I know that short stories are kind of a hard sell. I know that not a lot of people like them. And, uh, you know, when I talk with King fans, I don't think there are as many short story fans um, when it comes to his longer forms. But before we head into the next section, we are going to mention a few connections that I just feel I have to tell you. I gotta tell you guys, um, in case you listen to this episode and you're like, okay, that was cool. I have zero plans to read Bizarre Bedreams. I have zero plans <laughs> to read any story, not even any of the 2021 stories. I'm just not interested. So I did hope that this might be a carrot dangler, uh, just in case uh, we might get your attention just a little bit. So one of the biggest ones that just screamed off the page for me and that I wanted to mention for you guys is Cookie Jar equals Lisey's story. Oh my gosh, guys, that is the biggest connection I found. I was just so drawn and thinking of Lisey's story, friends. So constant readers, I know Lisey's story is another hard sell. And once more, I do not recommend Lisey's story to new King readers. Nope, nope, nope. So if you are a brand new King reader, do not read Lisey's story. That is senior capstone level stuff. Don't do it. I even mention it in my Lisey's story episode way back at the beginning of the podcast. So tread carefully. However, what I'm thinking about is for those constant readers out there who might give Lisey's story a chance coming up here this year because we have an Apple TV miniseries written by King that's hopefully going to come out this year. So my finger crossed hope is that more King fans and constant readers will give this one a go. Um, but let's just say, you know, you start watching the Apple TV series, you start re reading Lisey's story. Um, I, I, I want you to read Cookie Jar, guys, because this is paralleling Lisey's story quite a bit. Um, so once more, uh, Lisey's story is 
a nutballs novel, guys. I can't emphasize that enough. It's nutballs. It's insane. It's just wild fantasy and magical realism and lots of symbolic language and it's very trippy. It's very drug trippy. Um, Lisey's story was written in 2006 and Cookie Jar was published in 2016. So we got a legit 10 years, give or take some publication dates and whatnot. But in Lisey's story, the main character, one of them, Scott Landon, uh, the wife or the, <laughs> the husband of Lisey Landon, has this connection. And I'm just going to say that without revealing too much to another world. So Scott Landon has a connection to another world. And this place definitely exists, guys. And I have definitely in all caps. It exists. And then without spilling everything in cookie jar, Rhett's mother is someone who in the 1930s when he's talking about her is deemed a manic depressive but let's just say uh she's not only connected to another world but maybe also connected to the future here on earth so it's very cool and when i read when i read cookie jar Granted, I've also read Lisey's story twice, so it's pretty fresh in my memory. But when I read Cookie Jar, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, this is Lisey's story so hard. So if you have read Lisey's story and you liked it, I would like you to please seek out Cookie Jar and make haste, good sirs, because Lisey's story is coming, the Apple TV miniseries, and I'm looking forward to revisiting my thoughts on that spectacularly kooky novel and hopefully well-adapted, well-written King TV miniseries. But more on Cookie Jar in the next section, because as you guys can most uh, probably imagine, I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm just absolutely salivating over that one and I was very surprised by it so secondly blockade Billy oh my gosh guys I mentioned this one if you are a fan of 2019 oh my goodness no 2018's the outsider so that novel is really cool guys um, I've kind of touched on it a little bit with talking about the miniseries on HBO, which is stellar. Please watch it if you haven't. But The Outsider is King with his crime hat on, which some constant readers are, you know, heads or tails about, 50-50 about it. I really enjoy it. I love police procedural. I love thrillers. I love mystery. I love anything that's focused on the detective investigation. I'm a huge fan of that. And uh, King is too. I think that's specifically why he's exploring hard case crime tales. Um, so more on that in a little bit. But in 2018's The Outsider, we have a, a villain-esque thing that is something alien, right? And not necessarily little green men alien, let's just say it's undefinable. With Blockade Billy, until you get to the end, there's a little bit of gray area where you aren't really sure about the main antagonist. Is it something paranormal or is it completely commonplace and explainable? And as I was making my way through Blockade Billy and you're connecting the dots of the strangeness 
I was like, oh my god, this reminds me so much of The Outsider, as well as um, If It Bleeds, which is the secondary Holly Gibney novel connected to The Outsider. There's some cool stuff with that. So I'm mentioning this just in case you are fans of the previous mentioned works so you can dabble and take an adventure with these two stories. And then of course, all Dark Tower fans, you can't forget about Ur. I think it's pretty important. I think it's a must read, just like Little Sisters of Aluria. Um, granted, I'm not very far into my Dark Tower journey, but um, this one seemed just like a, a kind of pleasant nod to all the fans. Uh, it seemed very sweet. Also its own thing, but I was happy that I'm not that far in my Dark Tower journey, but there were some guys in yellow coats. There was some creepy, freaky stuff and uh, lots of mention about, you know, uh, other worlds than these. So I really liked Ur and I'm sure Dark Tower fans are seldom lukewarm, so I'm sure me telling you to read Ur is completely unnecessary. Um, but I would, I would like you guys, especially fans of old school horror king um, in the 80s and 90s, maybe more 80s, uh, and late 70s, of course, you definitely need to check out, of course, Mile 81 if you're a Christine fan, and then The Little Green God of Agony for anybody who loves gothic anything. That one also, Little Green God of Agony, is 1000% reminiscent of... Revival, which I believe was a 2014 release. Please forgive me if I'm getting the year wrong. It might be 2013, 2014. The ending of Revival, if you guys jump back to my Revival episode, is holy crap, is it very dark, friends. Very dark in a cinematic, bombastic, explosive, reminiscent to some dark gothic fiction. Uh, the Little Green God of Agony pulled me right out of the room and straight back to the end of Revival. So if you liked Revival, please jump back to The Little Green God of Agony and let me know your thoughts. So my hope is, is that any of the novels I've mentioned in connection with these short stories will encourage you guys to take a look because for, I know, I just, it's one of those things, I get it, some people just aren't crazy about short stories, they really want to, when they sit down to a story, they want to just buckle up for a long ride. I totally get that. Um, whereas if you're maybe a little bit more interested in fiction in terms of construction, the craft, uh, looking at something like a little puzzle piece that isn't that long, uh, please take a look at these stories. I'd love to know what you guys think. Let's stretch out of our comfort zone just a little bit with King and uh, let me know your thoughts. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to this second section. I'll see you in the next one where we're going to dive into some stories.
Alright friends, thanks for sticking with me. We have finally reached the chunk in the episode where we're going to talk about some individual stories. So for this section, I have three stories I really want to talk about and delve into a little deeper, starting with the first one, uh, kicking off our second 10 stories, and that is Herman Woke is Still Alive. Okay, friends, this masterful story is only 20 pages and left such a lasting impact on me. Oh, wow. So this story has a triple crown in which not only is there a really compelling real-life inspiration behind the story, but also because in such a short amount of time, we have two completely different sets of characters not connected to one another at all. And then there's this third layer of a real-life author named Herman Woke, who I had not heard of before this story, but he is, uh, at the time of publication, very old. He is now currently deceased. As of 2019, he died at the age of 104. And I guess around the writing of this story, there was a newspaper article in which he was still publishing novels, which is kind of where the title of the story wraps it all together. And after you read the story, reflecting on the title. Oh my gosh, guys, it's just so rich and dramatic. And uh, so we've got three layers of cool. So I want to read you the opener from King to this story and the reason why it resonates with me so much. This is on page 267 in the American hardcover. On July 26, 2009, a woman named Diane Schooler left the Hunter Lake Campground in Parksville, New York, driving her 2003 Ford Windstar. She had five passengers, her five-year-old son, her two-year-old daughter, and three nieces. She seemed fine. The last person to see her at the campground swear she was alert and had no liquor on her breath and equally fine an hour later when she fed the kids at a Mickey D's. Not long after that, however, she was observed vomiting beside the road. She called her brother and said she did not feel well. Then she turned onto the Taconic Parkway and drove the wrong way for nearly two miles, ignoring the horns, waves, and flashing lights of those who dodged around her. She eventually hit an SUV head-on, killing herself, all but one of her passengers, her son survived, and the three men in the SUV. According to the toxicology reports, Schooler was processing the equivalent of 10 drinks at the time of the crash, plus a large amount of marijuana. Her husband stated that his wife wasn't a drinker, but toxicology reports don't lie. Like Candy Reimer in the previous story, Diane Schooler was loaded to the max. Did Daniel Schooler really not know, after at least five years of marriage and a period of courtship, that his wife was a secret drinker? It's actually possible. Abusers can be incredibly sly and hide their addictions for a long time. They do it out of need and desperation. What exactly happened in that car? How did she get drunk so fast? And when did she smoke the dope? What was she thinking when she refused to heed the drivers warning her that she was going the wrong way? Was it a booze and drug-fueled accident, a murder-suicide, or some weird combination of both? Only fiction can approach answers to these questions. Only through fiction can we think about the unthinkable and perhaps obtain 
gain some sort of closure. This story is my effort to do that. Oh my gosh, love it, love it. This is, in fact, an exercise we use in creative writing um, to take a headline from a newspaper or an ad in the back of a penny saver or any magazine, and the task is to write a creative story about the people on the other side of that message, or more accurately, how the moment of the headline came to be. So this story feels very academic for me in terms of, this is what I do all the time, guys. This is a real life fiction workshop prompt, which I have used for my own students in the past. And it's a blast and we get a lot of rich output because of it. And I've done headline prompts for the entire class. If we're not doing a headline from the newspaper, um, we will do another example is one of my favorites called Five Things, where I pick five totally random items like uh, a rusty red pickup truck, a carton of eggs, a pair of gardening scissors, a bridal dress, and a bus ticket to Montana or something. And I just clap and say, all right, folks, minimum a thousand words. And it's so much fun to see what they come up with. It's a ball. And sometimes we read them out loud if we have time. And it's just one of my favorites. But with this prompt that King opened with, it just blows me away. It just blows me away. And when we actually read the story, I can see how the two females in this story are the main meat of the sandwich. But then rather than just focus on the headline, rather than than just create a sad story. He gives us two deeper layers of investigation with these aging poets who are having lunch at a rest stop reading a newspaper about Herman Woke still being alive and publishing. And then for a minute, the, the reader is realizing or observing that they used to sleep together and <laughs> and there's even mention of their poems so there's just so many layers to this decadent cake and uh it makes this short story so rich and deep guys and oh my god it ends like a firecracker and i love the hell out of it it completely inspires me and i want to teach it in my class so much so this is one of my favorite blurbs when you realize these two unfortunate souls, at least in my personal observation, seem really to be pitied and maybe not vilified as much as we, of course, we may condemn their choices later on. Um, it's just amazing what he does here, folks. Granted, I don't think King is extremely approving of their choices, of course not, but I also think that he's showing us both sides. He's showing his incredible disgust for what they do, but also human empathy. And I don't know if this is a gender thing, guys. I'd like to know your thoughts on this or just the way he lays on their suffering really thick. But me, as the reader, I do pity them. I do. It's awful what goes down later in the story, but I feel their sorrow of being trapped in a life you didn't want. And when it comes to overindulging in a moment of freedom, maybe there was definitely a bit of selfishness and madness behind that. Anyway, here's a chunk of text I absolutely adore. This is from the American Hardcover on page 278 and 279. 
Brenda should be happy. The kids are quiet. The road stretches ahead of her, of her like an airport runway. She's behind the wheel of a brand new van and the traffic is light once they leave Portland. The digital speedometer reads 70 and this baby hasn't even broke a sweat. Nonetheless, the grayness has begun to creep over her again. The van isn't hers after all. She'll have to give it back. A foolish expense, really, because what's at the far end of this trip? Mars Hill. Mars fucking Hill. Food brought in from the Roundup, where she used to waitress when she was in high school and still had a figure. Hamburgers and fries covered with plastic wrap. The kids splashing in the pool before and maybe after. At least one of them will get hurt and ball, maybe more. Glory will complain that the water is too cold, even if it isn't. Glory always complains. She will complain her whole life. Brenda hates that whining and likes to tell Glory it's her father coming out. But the truth is, the kid gets it from both sides. Poor kid. All of them, really. And the years stretch ahead. A march beneath a sun that never goes down. She looks to her right, hoping Jasmine will say something funny and cheer her up, and is dismayed to see that Jazz is crying. Silent tears well up in her eyes and shine on her cheeks. In her lap, Baby Delight sleeps on, sucking one of her fingers. It's her comfort finger, and it's all blistered down the inside. Once Jazz slapped her good and hard when she saw Dee sticking it in her mouth. But what good is slapping a kid that's only six months old? Might as well slap a door. But sometimes you do it. Sometimes you can't help yourself. Sometimes you don't want to help it. Brenda has done it herself. What's wrong, girl? Brenda asks. Nothing. Never mind me. Just watch your driving. Behind them, Donkey says something funny to Shrek, and some of the kids laugh. Not Glory, though. She's nodding off. Come on, Jazz, tell me. I'm your friend. Nothing, I said. Jasmine leans over the sleeping infant. Delight's baby seat is on the floor. Resting in it on a pile of diapers is the bottle of Allen's they stop for in South Portland. Before hitting the turnpike, Jazz has only had a couple sips, but this time she takes two good long swallows before putting the cap back on. The tears are still running down her cheeks. Oh gosh, guys, there are so many rich layers to this story because we're in the car with Jasmine and Brenda. Then soon we jump to a rest stop with Phil and Pauline who are reading about Herman Woke. And at the end, they all meet together in a flashbang that left me breathless. And I can't stop thinking about this story, guys. I love it so much. And I really see a lot of talent here. I just, there's a lot of creative experimentation and this is one of my new favorites for sure. So uh, usually with the King Collections, when I want to remember a story that I super loved, I always stick a post-it note in my copy so I can flip to it on the shelf every now and again. And this one, Herman Woke is still alive, um, as well as a death. Those are definitely getting post-it notes. Also, the Dune. Um, more on those in a little bit. But in the next section, we're going to talk about my favorites overall um, as a whole. We'll do some ranking. So I don't know if this is number one yet, but it's up there for sure. All right, number two, our second story I want to mention is, of course, 
cookie jar. So once more, this story is only found in the paperback edition of The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, but it's featured on the audiobook, which is an awesome release with over 20 narrators. Totally great if maybe you read Bazaar of Bad Dreams a while ago and you want to spice it up a little bit. Highly, highly recommend reading along with the audiobook. It's very flavorful. But friends, as you've probably heard me blab a lot about this story thus far, I just, oh my god, I, I liked Cookie Jar so much. I loved Cookie Jar so much. This is, this is how deep the love goes, guys. I think if I were a filmmaker or ever decided down the road I wanted to try that, I think this one, Cookie Jar, would be my dollar baby. So for those of you who are plugged in with the King universe, uh, Mr. King uh, has a personal policy or this action in place um, where if you are an aspiring filmmaker or a student and you would like to create an adaptation of one of his short stories, he or his foundation will sell the rights to the story to you for only one American dollar. And poof, you get to create what you want, raise the money for it, and there's actually a few people who have done such incredible things with the Dollar Baby program. So it's the best thing I've ever heard and even more reason to adore this wonderful man. But Cookie Jar was so cool for me, guys. So visual and somebody out there needs to make a short film because, oh my God, I think it can go really far, really, really far. It's that good. So in the tale of Cookie Jar, we have a traditional sort of linear narrative with a lot of flashbacks where a young boy, great-grandson Dale, is at the assisted living facility engaging with great-grandpa Rhett. But very soon after kicking off the narrative, the reader is in the 1930s with Rhett as a young boy. He is a child with his two brothers and hanging out with a very loving mom who is said to be plagued with mental illness. And what the reader sees is a really fun-loving lady who is very giving and sweet and playful creates a safe haven for her children, but she is separated from the husband. She's living uh, in a tiny little shack of a place. It's hers, but, you know, the adult situation is not good. And it's said that she's often consumed with drawing a wall-sized map. It is incredibly detailed, um, and it takes up the entire wall of one of, in her little house. So there is this very rich, fantastical story associated with this map, and soon the reader learns words like Forza, La Lenka, Gobbets, Red Henry, Black John, Castle Black, Castle Red, and it means little to the reader at first, but it's something that the children, young Rhett, uh, regards with great importance because their mom is quite consumed by it. She's always drawing on it, always working on it, and telling them the story. And while this map and this delicate description of madness is going on, um, the mom, her name is Moira Alderson, also has this quite large ceramic dark blue cookie jar that is 
consistently full of fresh cookies. And the boys just eat cookies all the time. And there seems to just be a bountiful supply. And it, there are so many cookies that their mom's house permanently smells like a bakery. And they associate the scent of like vanilla and butter with how their mom smells, which is pretty precious. So here is where it gets fantastical and really clicks me right in place with Lacey's story and perhaps other fantasy tinged king works, but the cookie jar is constantly refilling itself, my guys. That's where we get the kicker. It is limitless because it's actually limitless. <laughs> Something is going on and we don't know, but uh, let's just say this cookie jar is always filled with freshly baked cookies. So it's such a wonderful visual descriptive thing and I think it would be awesome on screen, like a really kind of dark Willy Wonka thing happening. But out of the three brothers, uh, Peter's the oldest, Jack is the middle, and Rhett is the youngest. Jack and Rhett are the closest. Um, and Rhett specifically is the closest to his mom. Um, Jack and Rhett, I think, love her the most. And Peter is the oldest. He's just, he's confused and uh, trying to be overly responsible and disconnect so he's not as close with her. But because Rhett and Jack were close with their mom, uh, the cookie jar, and when they start to spend some time with it, and realize it's refilling itself. They realize their mom was not crazy at all, and the cookie jar is proof that there was slash is so much more going on. So some of the scenes I like is the boys eat cookies at night, and they miss their mom, they talk about her, and not only does the jar stay filled, but it's different cookies all the time, which is why we need this on the big screen, guys. Um, sometimes there's ginger snaps, sometimes oatmeal raisin, chocolate cheese, chip, pecan sandies, peanut butter smoothies, um, all different kinds, always fresh, always refilling. And Rhett is the one who, as he grows up, finally gets so confused and frustrated he dumps them all out. And he actually does this more than once and discovers there's not only way more cookies inside the actual physical receptacle, like he is sitting under a mountain of cookies. It's very, very uh, Roald doll, very kind of uh, fantastical, maybe Dr. Seuss a little bit. Um, he dumps them all out. He actually does this more than once and he realizes there is so much more to this and the cookie jar and his mom's story. So here is an excerpt from the Virginia Quarterly Review copy because I don't have the paper book, but paperback book. <laughs> I don't have a paperback copy, um, but you can access the PDF and enjoy this amazing story. Please do it ASAP. But here's a chunk I really enjoy. One night in March of 1946, after his father had gone to bed and while a sleet thickened wind slapped at the house, Rat went up to the attic. The cookie jar was where he had left it, behind a carton of boxed-up glassware from when a sane mother had lived in this house. Rhett hefted it, half expecting it to be light, its magic gone, but it was still full. 
He took it down the narrow flight of stairs cradled against his belly and sat with it on the bed where Jack had sat behind him so many times. He lifted the lid and breathed deep, smelling chocolate and vanilla and cinnamon and butter. Good smells. Fresh smells. Once he had remembered and longed for in the heat of a French summer and the cold of a German winter. The smell of newly baked cookies that had always pervaded his mother's little house, where she had danced to the Victrola and given them custard in little green cups. My mother, the good witch, Rhett thought, and this fucking thing drove her mad. The way my memories of the war will drive me mad if I let them. Is there always a red Henry, a black Adolf? Does there have to be? Why does there have to be? The anger that had floated in him ever since Buchenwald, his own Forsa, coalesced into a dark cloud, and he upended the jar, spilling out a flood of cookies that overflowed the bed and made a mountain on the floor. At last, just when he began to think they would continue pouring out until he was drowning in ginger snaps and peanut butter smoothies, they stopped. He raised the jar, tilting it up to the ceiling like a telescope, and peered in. Oh, guys, I want to make this into a film for sure. If I had a crew and had a setup, oh my god, I would start hiring actors. I would, oh, I'm a, I want to so much because this is such a touching story. And if there are any filmmakers out there who want to beat me to it, fine by me. Just make it awesome and have all the cookies in the world make an appearance because somebody has to get this to the screen, guys. It's a period piece. It's a war story. It's about childhood. It's about mental illness. It's about aging and saying goodbye. And it's about the fantastical unknown. We have fantasy, sci-fi. It is so intriguing, curious, very visual. So visual, guys, that it is just it needs to be on screen. It needs to be on film. The jar, you know, the cookies, and when we also find out what's at the bottom of the jar, like we, oh, this is magic. It's also, as I mentioned, incredibly touching, sweet, and the ending is very open-ended. So it's very possible that if you connect with the story enough, it's really an open road for a creative bend and we could have way more episodes. It doesn't have to be um, a short film. It could be a feature down the road or perhaps a limited series. Let's thank big people. <laughs> but I was very surprised as to how much the imagination within and the passing of time in this little story really carried me away. I keep thinking about it, guys. I keep imagining in vivid detail some of the really beautiful images, and I just... I swoon. Love, 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 cookie jar. And once more, if you liked Lacey's story, if you liked it, which I know there are some rare little doves flying out there who enjoyed it, please check this one out because there's a lot of similarities. Lacey's story is, of course, much darker, much darker. But this is 
kind of like a little sorbet cup to cleanse the palette. It's very Lisey Story-esque. Um, so my only comparison is to Lisey Story, but if there is another story, if you check this one out, if you read this cookie jar story and it reminds you of another king work that I haven't read yet, please write into the show at underratedsk at gmail. Let me know so I can bump that said work one rung higher on my to read list because I am so smitten for this story and if there's another king work out there that you think is similar please let me know all right number three under the weather all right guys so this is the last story in this section we're going to talk about that I want to delve into a little deeper and that is an 18 page little spooky called under the weather and I mentioned this one this is another sneaky little uh, dollop of gold this one was also included in the paperback edition of one of my favorite novella collections full dark no stars which if you haven't heard my episodes on that title please jump back and have a listen because it was the very first title I ever read from Mr. King in all of my life and it changed everything forever and ever. Um, so I was thrilled that this one was included in the paperback edition. And also I realized reading Bizarre Bad Dreams, I need to invest in paperback editions because they have some magical little secrets and I have no idea. So I am so excited that this one was a part of the paperback edition um, published in 2011. And having read it and enjoyed it, I think it perfectly fits. It's so, so good. Um, I think the spooky nature of this story and the way the actual creepout is known to the reader way in advance is very neat. And in other, in Under the Weather, it really creates that dramatic irony where the reader is the smart one. We know all the answers as be and because we're aware of the situation pretty early, we kind of have to bide our time with a narrator we don't trust and who we might be a little afraid of. Or if you're not afraid of him, you might pity him a little bit, but I mostly think, at least for me, having gone over this a few times, as you're making your way with this narrator, I think his name is, yeah, Brad Franklin, I really wanted to get away from him by the last page. So Brad Franklin is about 50-something, I believe, and his wife Ellen, she is in bed under the weather for the last week or so, a stomach bug, um, or I think he, Brad says, bronchitis at one point. Um, so Brad's just taking care of the house, he's going to work, he's coming home, taking their dog Lady for walks in the city, and he tells everyone who's asking about Ellen, she's just under the weather and she'll be up and about soon enough. So I'm I'm only going to read a small chunk of this one to show a little bit of that dramatic irony the reader gets to feel um, because as this story is sh so short guys it's very difficult to completely avoid the spoiler because it's very easy to deduce what's going on so I'm just gonna give you a tiny little snippet so if you haven't read it you can give it a go and enjoy the ride 
and the reveal and the time spent with this very peculiar narrator, Brad Franklin. This is on page 300. The call I've been expecting comes around 3.30. It's not Carlo, it's Burke Ostro, the building super. He wants to know what time I'm going to be home because the rat everybody's been smelling isn't in 5C, it's in our apartment. Ostro says the exterminators have to leave by 4 to get to another job, but that isn't the important thing. What's important is fixing what's wrong in there, and by the way, Carlos says no one's seen your wife in over a week, just you and the dog. I explained about my deficient sense of smell and Ellen's bronchitis. In her current condition, I say, she wouldn't know the drapes were on fire until the smoke detector went off. I'm sure Lady smells it, I tell him, but to a dog, the stench of a decaying rat probably smells like Chanel Number no. 5. I get all that, Mr. Franklin, but I still need to get in there to see what's what, and the exterminators will have to be called back. I think you're probably going to be on the hook for their bill, which is apt to be quite high. I could let myself in with the pass key, but I'd really be more comfortable if you were... Yes, I'd be more comfortable too, not to mention my wife. I tried calling her, but she didn't answer the phone. I can hear suspicion in his voice now. I've explained everything. Advertising men are good at that, but the convincing effect only lasts for 60 seconds or so. That's why you keep hearing the same ads and slogans over and over again. A little dabble, do ya? Save time, save money. Pepsi for those who think young. I'm loving it. Breakfast of champions. It's like driving a nail, driving it right into the heartwood. She's probably got the phone on mute, plus the medication the doctor gives her very makes her sleep quite heavily. What time will you be home, Mr. Franklin? I can stay until seven. After that, there's only Alfredo. The disparaging note in his voice suggests I'd be better off dealing with a street weirdo. Never, I think. I'll never be home. In fact, I was never there in the first place. Ellen and I enjoyed the Bahamas so much we moved to Cable Beach, and I took a job with a little firm in Nassau. I shout cruise ship specials. The ride is the destination. Stereo blowout sales. Don't just hear it better, hear it cheaper. And supermarket openings. Save under the palms. All this New York stuff has just been a lucid dream. One I can escape at any time. Okay, I hope you liked that. I really like this story, guys, and I love it even. <laughs> I think I already loved it once I found out it was in Full Dark No Stars. Um, I was ready to, I was hopeful. I was hopeful it was going to be worthy of the amazingness that is Full Dark No Stars, and I think it is. I think it's totally worthy to be right beside the holy quadruple of 1922, Big Driver, Fair Extension, and a good marriage. So I love it and I think it works and I like that it's a tiny footnote of a story in the paperback edition. I give it an earnest golf clap, super liked it. It's a very cool device uh, of dramatic irony. So those are the three I uh, enjoyed exploring with you guys to a greater degree. Thank you so much for hanging out. Next section, we'll take a look at a few more stories as well as my favorites in the Bizarre of Bad Dreams collection coming up next.
Alright ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna chat a few more stories and then wind our way out of the Bazaar of Bad Dream short story collection. We have a few more we're gonna touch on really quick and then we will rank some favorites before we say goodbye and discuss what's coming up soon on the podcast. So the story I feel we must, must, must spend a little time on is Blockade Billy. So this one is very meaty, guys. And as I mentioned in part one, this was one when I first read it years ago, I was not a fan of. And now on my reread, almost five-ish years later, five, six years later, I'm a super fan. So, like Ur and Bad Little Kid, Blockade Billy is one of the larger ones in the collection, and I actually have a physical copy of this as a singular release. It's a little book, and there's a kind of menacing Norman Rockwell-esque painting of a catcher looking pretty intense, and it's a tiny little yellow hardcover, and it just says, Blockade Billy, as well as the story Morality in a little hardback release. So I'm sure the King collectors out there know exactly what I'm talking about, but uh, inside the Bizarre of Bad Dreams collection, it's approximately 40 pages in length, and this one is very unique in language as well as structure. So in his opening for the story, King writes that he wanted to strive to recreate a very mid-century baseball-soaked speak or speech, and I think he totally accomplishes it. The language and colloquialism of the game is really present, but also there, in addition to that, he also creates this a kind of uber male or intensely masculine vernacular of that time. It's incredibly prominent. It comes across as effortless and at times a bit off-putting. More on that later. But the unique aspect to the story is that Stephen channels his own personal past by letting the reader know he was a sports reporter back in the day. Uh, according to Steve, his first paid writing job was for a publication called the Lisbon Enterprise where he was a sports journalist. So he seems to be going back in time a little bit, tapping into um, a bit of metafiction, perhaps. Uh, he, he quotes his sons as saying that this story is an example of some metafiction. But in the story, uh, Steve King, the sports journalist, is interviewing Granny Grantham in a bingo, another nursing home, or some kind of assisted living center, senior center, which I think I forgot this one as an example. So this probably makes five assisted living examples in these collections in which a nursing home is featured. So I don't know if I mentioned Granny in the first section when I talk about all the nursing home stuff and how numerous they are, but Granny is talking to a journalist named Steve about a player named William Blakely, aka Blockade Billy. And I think this is my first run-in where Steve has actually written himself into the story. I have heard from other constant readers, I think it was... 
was it Jason Pellegrini? I think so. I think he told me that King wrote himself into something. So this is the first I've seen it before. And it only really pops up once or twice in the story, but the structure of this narration is that of an interview with a singular character who was there for the 1958 season of the Titans and observed the fandom, the pandemonium, and the unexplained terror at the end, which Granny kind of divulges to the reader, is working really, really well, guys. It's uh, it's definitely channeling The Outsider, as I've mentioned, so if you're a fan of 2018's The Outsider, give this one a go. Um, but I really enjoyed Blockade Billy, and if you are someone either American or not American who enjoys baseball and haven't yet read this one, oh my goodness, guys, please read it as... Yeah, um, it's absolutely for baseball fans, and if you haven't uh, yet read The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon and you love baseball, please give that one a chance too, although I know that one is a harder sell. However, I still, I still will preach Tom Gordon to the highest heavens because I think it's very special. Um, if you want to indulge a little bit deeper into the world of Baseball King, please check back to my episode on The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. It's a favorite of mine. It's also a favorite of a lot of women. I hate to genderize it, but it's a thing. Most men hate that book. Most women love it. So just a hypothesis, if you are a man who loved Tom Gordon, please uh, write me immediately because I gotta know. But Blockade Billy, as I mentioned in part one of this investigation, did not like it at all, wasn't a huge fan. This time around, I super loved it, guys. I super loved the complexity, I enjoyed the story structure, and just how much the language completely immersed me in this very male environment where this guy called Blockade Billy is kinda weird, kinda harmless, but then, not so fast, kind of awful. So before I read a, ch a chunk of text from the story, the only thing, and I was thinking about this recently, it's that is kind of alienating about this story is for me, I think that if you don't understand the game of baseball, or if you've never played it before, if you've never been to a game, either a little league game or, or a major league game, if you don't know the rules, if you aren't a part of the culture of baseball in some way, I know this is kind of a big thing, but it's like, I don't think this story can really be enjoyed, friends. Like, honestly, I think this is a very specific story that is catering to baseball fans only because the language used is very baseball-centered. For example, if you read a sentence in this story uh, and someone says, he cracked a double, I mean, unless you guys understand baseball, how would you know that a double means a hit where the runner gets to second base? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, like, something like that is very minor if you, I mean, something like that is very minor if you understand baseball. However, if you don't, that becomes a big deal. That's going to be a challenge. So the code speak of Blockade Billy is what fascinates me about it, but I realize it's it's really for a privileged audience 
of those who understand baseball. Because not only did I play baseball as a child, but I've been to many games throughout my life. I understand these words they are saying because you grow up with them when you're playing the sport. It's its own language. And so while I'm so in awe of Blockade Billy, I feel there's going to be a steep learning curve for anyone who isn't baseball aware. And that is something that kind of made me think about it a little differently. Just recently, actually. It is something to keep in mind. However, um, when you consider the girl who loved Tom Gordon, there is far less specific baseball speak. And I feel it's much lighter on baseball dynamics. It's you know, all the reader really connects with is that the Boston Red Sox are Trisha's favorite team and Tom Gordon is her favorite pitcher, relief pitcher, and that's really, you know, it's pretty light on the baseball dynamics, but with Blockade Billy, the entire story, guys, and I do mean from start to finish, the entire story is written in baseball-steeped code. So it's both wonderful to those who understand this language, but I realized it probably isn't so wonderful to someone who doesn't understand this language. So please keep that in mind, friends. I think it's definitely um, something to keep in mind. So this is a chunk from page 321 and 322 to give you an idea of what I am talking about. All right, so let me... All right, 321. Sisler walks twice around the mound, soaking up the fan love. Boy, oh boy, they wanted him drawn and quartered. And then he went to the rosin bag, and then he shook off two or three signs, taking his time, you know, letting it sink in. The kid, all the time, just standing there with his back cocked, comfortable as your grandma squatting on the living room sofa. So Dandy Dave throws a get-me-over fastball right down Broadway, and the kid loses it in the left-field bleachers. Tidings was on base, and we were up two to nothing. I bet the people over in New York heard the noise from Swampy when the kid hit that home run. I thought he'd be grinning when he came around third, but he looked just as serious as a judge. Under his breath, he's muttering, Get it done, Billy. Showed that busher and got it done. The dew was the first one to grab him in the dugout and danced him right into the bat rack. Helped him pick up the spilled lumber, too, which was nothing like Danny Doosan, who usually thought he was above such things. After beating Boston twice and pissing off Pinky Higgins, we went down to Washington and won three straight. The kit hit safe in all three, including his second home run, but Griffith Stadium was a depressing place to play, brother. You could have machine gunned a running rat in the box seats behind home plate and not had to worry about hitting any fans. Goddamn Senators finished over 40 back that year. Jesus fucking wept. The kid was behind the plate for the Dew's second start down there and damn near caught a no-hitter in his fifth game wearing a big league uniform. Pete Runnels spoiled it in the ninth, hit a double with one out. After that, the kid went out to the mound, and that time, Danny didn't wave him back. They discussed it a little bit, and then the Dew gave an international pass to the next batter, Lou Berber. See how it all comes back? That brought up Bob Usher, and he hit into a double play just as sweet as you could ever want. Ball game. That night, the Dew and the Kid went out to celebrate Deucin's 180th win. 
When I saw our newest chick the next day, he was very badly hungover, but he bore that as calmly as he bore having Dave Sizzler chuck at his head. I was starting to think we had a real big leaguer on our hands and wouldn't be needing Hubie Ratner after all, or anybody else. You and Danny are getting pretty tight, I guess, I says. Tight, he agrees, rubbing his temples. Me and the dew are tight. He says Billy's his good luck charm. Does he now? Yeah. He says if we stick together, he'll win 25, and they'll have to give him the Cy Young, even if the writers do hate his guts. That right. Yes, sir. That's right, Granny. Granny? What? He was giving me that wide blue stare of his, 2020 vision that he saw everything and understood almost nothing. By then, I knew he could hardly read, and the only movie he'd ever seen was Bambi. He said he went with the other kids from the Otter Show, or Outer Show, whatever, and I assumed it was his school. I was both right and wrong about that, but it ain't really the point. The point is, is that he knew how to play baseball, instinctively, I'd say, but otherwise, he was a blackboard with nothing written on it. Tell me again, what's a Cy Young? That's how he was, you see. Oh gosh, guys, there's so much to enjoy within Blockade Billy, but whew, man, reading that out loud, like the language is so rich and complex. It's just, oh, and the character of Billy, he's a real head scratcher. Even when the reader does learn a little bit more about his backstory, it's, Oh my gosh, guys, this one is very cinematic, it's layered, it's structured in a really cool way, and the language is just 1,000% baseball drenched. It's masculine, it's crass, it's gratuitous, it's kind of gross just because it's, you know, guys and they're very locker room guys, and it could be a little bit like, ugh. I don't want to know about this, but it it's just the absolute um, drenching of this environment and we're just steeped in it and it just speaks, really screams so loudly of the game. And it makes the game of baseball incredibly alive with a very creepy and tragic tale attached to it and channels the nightmare all the way my friends so check out blockade billy on your own with a standout copy with the story of morality attached to it which is also super awesome as i talked about in the last episode uh, or you can find it in your copy of the bizarre of bad dreams and folks overseas i'm so curious about this one have any of you read blockade billy what was it challenging or were you totally fine and there's nothing to worry about if any international listeners out there would like to write me on this one on this particular story i would love to know your thoughts i i'm gonna have to reach out to our friend chris s in new south wales and ask him about this one because i know cricket is similar to baseball but i don't think it's anywhere as you know rated r and like uh as intensely verbal and lots of symbolic language. I don't know, maybe it is. Maybe you guys can school me on cricket. But I think this story is pretty challenging to someone who isn't familiar with baseball. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it goes down just fine. So let me know if you are an international listener how this one went down for you. 
All right, so our next story is one that I so enjoyed. Of course, I'm just singing all of the hits here, but I think it's an important one as I never really read King talking about homosexuality in a purely neutral way. And granted, I'm only about 33 King books in, so there's a lot I haven't read, but thus far on my journey, the characters I've encountered with King reading have either been ridiculed about their sexuality, abused for it, kept it super secret, or it's a part of their character they're not really ready to confront or deal with. Or, sadly, King will somehow make them the most extreme sort of caricaturized, is that a word? <laughs> Perhaps not. But he makes them a caricature of it. Um, for example, with some of his depictions, we might have a homosexual who's like the queenest queen or the bushest butch. And it's nice here, the story Mr. Yummy, to have a character who really seems like just an average Joe, uh, unsuspecting, private, uh, someone who you could tell has just kind of lived life observing. And I, I like it. I think it's important that here we have King just writing about an old gay man with happy memories of being young, being alive on the town, in bars with his friends, and catching a glimpse of someone he calls Mr. Yummy, this dream guy, just perfect specimen of sexy and healthy and everything he was into. And so, in regards to homosexuality, word on the street is that the latest novel that just came out at the beginning of March, the hard case crime title called Later, which I'm absolutely salivating to read as I, of course, already have my copy. I'm looking at it right now on my bookshelf, but I plan to read that soon coming up here in summer, but I hear we have some lesbian characters, so I'm excited to observe that, see how it's dealt with, if it's a light touch or a heavy touch, but I can't express the amount of love I have for the subtle elegance and grace of Mr. Yummy. And I know the title kind of like sounds very sinister and freaky, but it's it's quite the opposite. There is so much elegance in delicate sweetness and a deep message in this little package. We've got friendship and aging and the AIDS epidemic and memory and it's it's very, very surprisingly meaningful, guys. So let me read you this chunk I super liked on page 355. Ollie, who had survived the age of the deep closet to live in one where gay marriage was legal in most states, once more shrugged his thin shoulders as if to say it was all water under the bridge. So that was our Mr. Yummy, the summation of all that was beautiful and desirable and out of reach. I never saw him again until two weeks ago. Not at High Pockets, not at Peter Pepper's or the Tall Glass, not at any of the other clubs I went to, although I went to those places less and less frequently as the so-called Reagan era wore on. By the late 80s, going to the gay clubs was too weird, like attending the masquerade ball in Poe's story about the Red Death. You know, come on everybody, kick out the jams, have another glass of champagne and ignore all those people dropping like flies. 
There was no fun in that unless you were 22 and still under the impression that you were bulletproof. It must have been hard. Ollie raised the hand not wedded to his cane and waggled it in a kumsi kamsa gesture. Was and wasn't. It was what the recovering alkies call life on life's terms. Dave considered letting it go at that and decided he couldn't. The gift of the watch was too dismaying. Listen to your uncle Dave, Ollie. Oh wait. <laughs> Listen to your uncle Dave, Ollie. Words of one syllable. You did not see that kid. You might have seen someone who looked a little like him, but if your Mr. Yummy was 22 back then, he'd be in his 50s himself now. If he avoided AIDS, that is. It was just a chick trick your brain played on you. My elderly brain, Ollie said, smiling. My going on senile brain. I never said senile. You're not that, but your brain is elderly. Undoubtedly, but it was him. It was. The first time I saw him, he was on Maryland Avenue at the foot of the main drive. A few days later, he was lounging on the porch steps below the main entrance smoking a clove cigarette. Two days ago, he was sitting on a bench outside the admission office, still wearing that blue sleeveless tee and those blinding white shorts. He should have stopped traffic, but nobody saw him. Except for me, that is. I refuse to humor him, Dave thought. He deserves better. You're hallucinating, pal. Ollie was unfazed. Just now he was in the common room watching TV with the rest of the elderly early birds. I waved to him, and he waved back. A grin, startlingly youthful, broke on Ollie's face. He also tipped me a wink. White bike shorts, sleeveless tee, 22 and good-looking? I may be straight, but I think I would have noticed that. He's here for me, so I'm the only one who could see him. Q-E-D. He hoisted himself to his feet. Shall we go back? I'm ready for coffee. They walked toward the patio where they would climb the steps as carefully as they had descended them. Once they had lived in the Reagan era, now they lived in the era of glass hips. When they reached the flagstones outside the common room, they both paused for breath. When Dave had his, he said, so what have we learned today, class? That death personified isn't a skeleton riding a pale horse with a scythe over his shoulder, but a hot dance hall kid with glitter on his cheeks. See what I mean? It's totally wonderful. In less than 20 pages. Ugh, in 20 pages, we have a very elegant, full of meaning story. And this one stuck with me, guys. It just got me thinking. And I think King does a great thing here, exploring just a, your average elderly, at the end of his life, homosexual man reflecting back on kind of the bumpy road that was and all he lost along the way and how maybe, you know, death looks a lot more handsome than he thought. So this one surprised me quite a bit. Definitely check out Mr. Yummy. I was thrilled by it.
So before we talk about our last story, I want to give a brief mention to Obits and Drunken Fireworks. So Obits is 40 pages and it's really fun and it's definitely a wonderful example of the Doom Avalanche, like all in caps, Doom Avalanche, this is a Doom Avalanche story. For if you're wondering what the hell Doom Avalanche is, go back to episode one and I talk about that. But it's a great spooky tale that is tied up real nice at the end and the narration it's hip and cool and fresh and it's a very fun premise about having one's writing come to life in uh, sinister ways so uh, simultaneously while it's written very fun and funky there's something very old school about the subject and it's old school and it's new school at the same time so unfortunately this one didn't get me enough to allow it to have too much spotlight. I enjoyed it, but for me I was like, um, we're gonna we're gonna leave this one in the shadows a little bit longer. Um, maybe on a second or third read. I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun reading it, but it wasn't enough to make the show. And then lastly, a drunken fireworks. So this one is cute, see guys. It's full of main flair. The accent, the colloquialisms, the expressions are super steeped from that part of the country. The Yankee accent is in full force. And it is impressive to see how King sort of weaves a tail in between all of that verbal craziness. But this is one I would say is the one story in the Bazaar of Bad Dreams that really didn't blow my dress up at all. Like, at all, guys. I admire it for its language. It's very simple, very North American, summer-soaked pastime of the story, but I don't know. When I was making my way through, I couldn't help but think in a little over 30 pages that the main characters, the main characters from Maine are incredibly stupid. Like, I I know that sounds mean, but guys, I just lost respect for them really early on with their intelligence level. <laughs> so, um, although in retrospect, maybe I was just supposed to let go of all sort of functioning brain cells to enjoy this one. Like perhaps drunken fireworks, requires drunkenness, you know? Like, I even read it twice to make sure I wasn't in a cranky mood when I read it, but nope, I I really didn't care for it. And like I mentioned, the language is worth the investment. I really liked it, and it is an enjoyable read, especially when you get to see King just bring the main accent and the main citizen to the foreground. And this one's very cheeky. It's full of debauchery and mischief, but I think it may have been a little too silly for me, as in sillier than all the rest, all the rest of them. So I had a conversation with Australian King Collector Chris S. a few weeks ago with our interview, and he told me this was one of his favorites, and I kind of want to call him up and like ask him more about that. It makes me really curious because this was the one story I would probably leave off in the collection just because of like, eh, maybe leave off is a bit too harsh. I think it is welcome amongst the stories, but perhaps I need another perspective or I 
was potentially too scholarly serious about it and I just need to lighten up. Uh, It could be either of those things. It's something, I'm just not sure what, but Drunken Fireworks is probably at the bottom of the barrel on the Bazaar of Bad Dreams list for me, guys. So before we go, I did want to mention the last story in the collection because this one smashed my heart in a wonderful way. It made me tear up. It's very touching, very powerful summer thunder. Now, I'm not sure if you guys know, the constant readers know, of course, but perhaps others might not. So the FX television series uh, directed by Kurt Sutter called Sons of Anarchy. Hopefully that rings a bell with a few of you. That show uh, featured a really awesome Stephen King cameo. I believe Kurt and Steve are buddies, and Steve was a guest on the show. His character is amazing. He helps just, I don't remember too many of the exact details, but I know he helps dispose of a body, and he's like head to toe in leather, leather jacket, leather pants. He's really intense, and he's a biker, of course. It's great. So, I loved Sons of Anarchy. Just really quick side note, guys. Like, that show kicked ass. Um, It ran from 2008 to 2014. And if anyone thinks it sounds stupid and it's just like a a biker gang soap opera, well, it's biker gangs, but they're completely acting out the story of Hamlet. So there. Boom. It's Hamlet, guys. Everywhere is Hamlet from start to finish, everywhere it is Hamlet with motorcycles. And it's done so incredibly well. The characters are 10 out of 10. And oh my god, in retrospect, I really don't know how I made it through the end of the show because the last two seasons were the most blood soaked. <laughs> like so hard to watch um I'm getting slightly off track but anyway um watch Sons of Anarchy because Summer Thunder is written with Mr. Kurt Sutter in mind I think it's even dedicated to him and rightly so as there is a really awesome climactic moment with a motorcycle in the final moments of the story. So Summer Thunder is 14 pages and in such a short space it accomplishes a lot. The subject is very grim, nuclear war has occurred, everyone is gone, and those who are left are rapidly dying of radiation poisoning, which is quite harrowing when one encounters the symptoms. And a man named Robinson finds a super sweet doggy he names Gandalf, and they stick together for a while. I think he calls him Gandalf because he's gray and shaggy, which is precious for all of you LOTR fans out there. But um, that's actually all I'm going to say, guys. I've decided to not read an excerpt of this one because I want you guys to read this gem on your own and let the feels pull you apart because it will happen. It's very atmospheric. It's very powerful. And I feel it's a wonderful final sad and yet optimistically defiant song to conclude an epic collection of stories, as this is the only one, the only one out of the 21 that made me a bit misty. So I really enjoyed its quiet power and the way in this story, someone can look death in the face a little bit and say, 
I'll find my own way out, thank you. So this one is a short, sweet, sparkling diamond, so please give it a read. All right, friends, I think I'm going to call it. I think we've reached the end. This has been a long journey between two episodes. And yet, even after all this blabbing, I feel I really didn't even scratch the surface <laughs> with this, these lovely assembly of stories. I could easily have a nerd out session with each and every one of them. They are so rich and well done and well written and have all of them have won me over heart and soul. So I promise I would so let's do a top five so I think at the bottom number five is definitely the dune oh so good number four is morality equally mesmerizing and very like slithery slime goodness number three is a death oh my god start to finish incredible Number two is Cookie Jar, which I know I nerded out last, uh, last section did that one. And when I was thinking about it in retrospect, I was like, how do I, the cookie aspect of it, I think may sound or come across as juvenile and it might deter you guys from checking it out, but I promise, please give it a chance. It's so much more than cookies. <laughs> if that makes sense like it's so wonderful guys there's world war ii there's mental illness there's aging and dying please uh check it out so much more than cookies and then number one herman woke is still alive oh friends Oh my god, that one is made of pure golden fire, and I'm going to find a way to teach it in my class. That's how you know you've won Kim C's heart, is does she want to teach it? Does she want her students to read it and talk about it, write about it, think about it? Yes, I do. Herman Woke is still alive. Fire. 10 out of 10. My favorite of the entire Bazaar of Bad Dreams collection honorable mentions I have five of them <laughs> I have five of them and all five are tied for sixth place <laughs> that's how much I adore them they just all fuse into this amorphous blob and they're all winners in my heart they are in a floating circle of sixth place and they're just all equal and awesome they are summer thunder mr. yummy blockade Billy under the weather and bad little kid so all the other stories mentioned in the collection are nevertheless fantastic reads completely enjoyable worth your time and investment they are theatrical fantastical some are packed with old school horror such as my lady one and the little green god of agony um super gothic touches with those and then of course we have a huge dark tower installment as well which is a ton of fun so i love this collection collection for the strong th theme throughout channeling both the doom avalanche and the nightmare and my hope is that this two-part episode has inspired you to maybe pick it up for the first time all you new readers out there or perhaps give it another spin if when you read it for the first time a few years ago like me maybe you yawned through a lot of the stories or you shelved it too fast give it another chance I promise the reread of this is a very rich experience 
So that's all for the story collection, folks. Once more, if you have any thoughts you would like to share with me, especially in regards to any of the stories in this collection, please write into the show at underratedsk at gmail.com or say hi on any of the socials as I'm always ready to chat about King, especially short story King. So coming up next time, I have a super secret surprise. It's another collaboration with my friends, Jess and Kendra from Unraveling Weird Lit. Palaver Unraveling Weird Lit is the title of their show. So uh, they messaged me a couple weeks ago and dragged me into this title that I've been dreading for a while now, but uh, because it's a, a, a trifecta, because it is a tricycle effort, there is safety in numbers, so we're going to give it a go. So tune in for some surprises coming your way and uh, concerning myself and Jess and Kendra from Palaver Unraveling Weird Lit in the next couple hopefully a couple weeks and then uh in the next few weeks after that in the next few weeks to come perhaps in the next month keep your eyes peeled for my coverage on drawing of the three i'm looking forward to continuing the tarot reveal with mr roland so thank you guys so so much for listening my little heart is an overflowing puddle of gratitude if you haven't already please head over to apple Podcasts and give the show a five star if you're a fan and help us attract more readers as we head deeper into spring i mean allergy season and cooler temps for our friends in the southern hemisphere so all right my my friends everything i do i do for you and Stephen King. (laughs) I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.